Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. This special edition episode of the Mod Pod has been developed and sponsored by Genetics and iCare Today. This special edition episode of the Mod Pods miniseries Genetics and Eye Care Today examines the application of genetic testing in everyday medical practice. First, we'll hear Dr. Elizabeth Yu share a case example of a patient seen for refractive screening with Drs. William Trattler and Mila Brujic. The three practitioners discuss the patient's clinical findings and the role of genetic testing with Avigen, the genetic eye test from Avellino and how this information factors into decisions about the patient's course of treatment. Hi, my name is Elizabeth Hugh, and I'm a cornea, cataract, and refractive surgeon at Virginia Eye Consultants in Norfolk, Virginia. It's a 32-year-old female. She wear, she's not able to wear contact lenses, and it's not because of a tolerance issue of discomfort. It's her astigmatism's too high, so it keeps turning on her. So there's a blur. So there is an induced blur and a discomfort when the contact lens rotates. And it makes sense because her prescription shows she is somewhat of a mixed astigmatism, maybe even a hyperopic astigmatism. Her right eye prescription is a minus 50 plus 250 in her glasses at 70 degrees. And her left eye is a minus two plus four at 75 degrees. And her new fraction actually is similar in its spherical equivalent, except it's slightly different. She's minus one and a quarter plus 350 at 110. So a little more stigmatism. Um, the medical history is unremarkable, but given that the spherical equivalent is pretty similar, it makes you wonder if they just didn't actually correct all the sphere in the past since the left one looks pretty similar. And her corneas are thick, 562 on the right and 570 on the left by ultrasound uh, pachymetry. Now, her topographies and her tomography really do demonstrate how beautiful her actual oblique or slightly oblique um, Myers look. And, and she has nice, long, extending, fairly symmetric Myers bow tie shaped. And it demonstrates at least 3.3 to 3.7 diopters of anterior with the rule of stigmatism going oblique at 113-ish degrees. Um, but the average Ks are 45.8 or so, and the max is at 47 and a half diopters. So here she is having a little, you know, on the higher side of astigmatism, and she's slightly steep. The left side, a little bit more impressive. It is very similar in that it is slightly oblique, but the max K value is 48.1 on the left eye. There's three and a half diopters and the meridian is about 60 to 70 degrees. Um, the posterior float is very, very close to um, the 
uh, best fit sphere. So that's relatively normal. And the actual thinnest point of the apex of the cornea is very close to the actual center of the cornea. So those indices on the posterior float are normal. Tell me, Bill, what you see when, I mean, what your thoughts are on the topos and her curvature. Well, while this patient has possibly progressive um, astigmatism, which is a red, big red flag when patients have changes in their total amounts of corneal astigmatism. Mel, I don't, do you agree with that? Is that something that is a risk factor for you or uh, yeah. what is your thought? A hundred percent, but th it's almost like a balance, right? And I think right. you're thinking the same thing, Bill, because you're seeing the increase in cell, but Liz, you, you said it best. There's this uh, maintenance of the uh, spherical equivalence. And the other thing too is you're dealing with a close toe with the rule of stigmatism. So although you see the increasing cell and you're a little bit concerned, um, with the rule kind of gives you a, a little bit of a sense of security. I'll add just one more kind of key pro with this one. So with a with the rule patient, um, when you fit them really with soft torque lenses, very rarely do they run into a situation of stability. This is actually kind of a cure red flag for me personally. If somebody's walking into the office and they're saying, I really can't wear my contact lenses um, predictably, which is essentially what she's saying to you. Um, mm -hmm. I always think there's something else going on with the shape of the cornea that may be inhibiting her ability to do that, which is what kind of triggers me to do further testing. So it's kind of this balance of like, there's some factors that are kind of suspicious. And then there are also certain factors that kind of add a certain level of security and in a sense that there's a lower risk of development. Now, right. can the max of 48, you know, so that slightly steeper corneal curvature cause that um, inability to have predictable vision in the contact lens? Uh, yeah, Liz, to a certain extent. Now saying that though, um, we found that although central steepness is important when we're talking about soft, small or small diameter gas permeable lenses, it's not the whole picture because we have to take into account the size of the cornea as well too. So if you're talking about a 48 on a large cornea, you're usually talking about a pretty um, deep cornea. So the sagittal depth on that cornea is pretty high. If you're talking about a 48 on a smaller cornea, yep. you wouldn't necessarily expect it, or even an average cornea, you might question it a little bit, but usually that's not steep enough to affect that. Gotcha. Okay. And I will say that, that the left eye is a little bit more asymmetric. It's hard because the patient looks like their lids are drooping a little bit, so you don't get the full um, corneal, corneal curvature, but it does appear that maybe there's a little inferior steeping in this left eye because that uh, in the orb scan, it gets that really dark color um, inferiorly. Uh, I did have a question. Has anyone ever used like um, a medication to make their pupil bigger for the for just taking the, the topography, just to get the full view? Absolutely. I, Bill, are you referring to like up, put a drop of Upneak in the eye? Yeah, I was just wondering. I haven't done that yet. Oh, but yeah. We do it all the time. Actually, Bill, one of the screening tools is uh, our fundus camera in our pretest room. If there's a shadow at the bottom, which corresponds to blocking of light superiorly, we'll put a drop of Upneak in and retake the pictures about oh, 10 yeah, minutes. Oh, okay, perfect, perfect. Yeah, that was an idea yeah. I had. I'm like, okay, I'm way behind yeah. the times because you guys are way ahead of me, but um, thanks for sharing that pearl. That could be really helpful. 
No, totally. Yeah. I mean, and I was thinking this and because sometimes when I get these patients and I don't like the way they look, I see them after they're dilated. I'll take them back just to get a scan. Not that that's the scan I'm going to necessarily use, but just to get a better idea of what's going on on the cornea. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I love it. Thank you so much. But that's such a great, you know, th- th- those are two great um, insights. One, you know, what we can do when we don't get um, great uh, capture um, because of the lid. But two, um, just the fact that there is this appearance and it, I, I almost feel like I'm making it up, but that it's not completely orthogonal in shape or that there could be a little tendency towards inferior steepening on this left eye. How ironic, again, you know, the pathology is slightly in the left, but just enough, you know, it, it, suspicious findings that it gives me that, I don't know, hmm, ha, if this were my sister, what would I do? So I got the genetic testing and her genetic testing is like, it's 10. I mean, she looks amazing. She's, you know, of course, negative for any of the corneal stromal dystrophies, um, but her genetic testing is a 10. Now, 10, let's say she does have a little bit of rubbing issues. Bill, what would you do? I mean, I would advise her not to rub her eyes, but Thankfully, she's unlikely to develop keratoconus unless she was a major eye rubber or some major physical something happened, like because she just doesn't have the genes to really put her at high risk. So this is a great great news for her. Also, great news um, for you know her ability to wear contact lenses and and glasses successfully and the risk for progression over time. Yeah. So this is great. So um, interesting. A few things. One is. The first thing I was going to ask you, Liz, was the eye, eye rubbing, because that could actually influence the uh, the wearing success or failure of a toric lens. Um, the good news is, is by removing the lenses and getting that stimuli off of the eye, um, you'll, you'll be removing the stimuli for rubbing the eye as well, too. So you may be doing this patient a huge favor by um, proceeding with refractive surgery for this individual. Certainly the genetics, the genetic side of it, again, when we think about this balance between genetic versus um, environmental risk, the genetic risk is so low that it gives me a lot more confidence with this particular patient. Gotcha. So Bill, would you have proceeded with LASIK on this patient or given LASIK as an option? Well, I think LASIK can be considered an option for this type of patient, but you know, I'm someone who's, I'm a big fan of PRK, so I probably still would have given their choices, but probably still ended up doing PRK. But I think the, those of my colleagues like yourself and others who want to do LASIK or smile this patient seems appropriate. There's no major red flags here. And then you have a very, uh, you know, the genetic test tells us the patient's at low risk. Uh, that seems to be quite helpful. Right. So she, in fact, was not an eye rubber, which is good news. Um, and so we went ahead and proceeded with LASIK. Um, and she has, it's been a year and a few months out, completely no shift in her prescription. She's Plano and very, very happy. That's great. But, you know, I'll tell you, sometimes even with these cell patients, you always have a little residual cell because it's hard to knock all of it out mm-hmm. with cyclo rotation and all. So, you know, I, and I always remembered, I was like, well, if she has residual cell, what will I do? And I had that conversation with her that we may not be able to enhance her. So she may always need a little something maybe for driving at night and otherwise, but she's right. done great. But the inherent genetic data really did help me significantly in both of these kind of refractive screenings where, you know, I just didn't feel comfortable to say no or yes, you know, until I got that information. So thank you for your thoughts. Thank you, Liz. Great job on the presentations.
Up next, Dr. Brujic shares a case of his own and reviews the patient's background, corneal scans, and genetic testing results with Drs. Trattler and Yu. The three practitioners discuss this unique case and weigh in on what they believe to be the best course of treatment, highlighting the fact that knowing the patient's genetic risk score is helpful in the final diagnosis. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Brugic. Um, I'm a partner of a four-location practice in Northwest Ohio. And today I, I'm, I'm excited to be with Dr. Trattler and Dr. Yu talking about uh, this specific case. And although it's not surgical in nature, it is kind of interesting. Um, and I, I'd love to hear you guys' thoughts on this. So I'll give you a little bit of a background on this patient. So um, regionally, we've been just seeing more specialty and advanced anterior segment cases and, and managing those um, with our ophthalmological and optometric counterparts and colleagues. And this was a person that was referred in for a specialty lens um, fit. This is a 35-year-old male patient, um, not taking any medication, doesn't have any history of allergies or at least any no-known allergies. You can see the manifest refraction um, manifests a significant amount of cylinder. So it's minus 0.75 minus 675 axis 10 and plus a quarter minus 7.25 axis 165. You know, Bill, I'll ask you first, um, tell me your thoughts just on that, on that prescription in particular. Is there anything that kind of triggers you to say, boy, this is, this is outside of the normal range or because it's with the rule, do you have a that, certain level of comfort with that? Well, I mean, that's an excessively high level of astigmatism. So this is definitely, you know, there's someone equal to someone who's like seven foot four. I mean, this is like not the typical patient that you're seeing every day in your practice, which is why I'd be referred to you for your specialty care. You know, it's interesting, but one of the one of the first things I asked the um, referring physician was whether or not they had any previous information on this patient. And they'd only seen them once, so they didn't really have a history on this individual. It would have been nice just to know if this is something that's been stable for years or if it's changing. Now, now this guy's wearing um, currently wearing glasses, um, and again, he's interested in options. So, whenever somebody comes into the practice, um, we actually perform an anterior segment OCT and we perform topographies. Liz, with the findings so far, I mean, what's your thoughts with a central corneal thickness of 520 and uh, 511? Is there any additional concerns with that level of corneal thickness? Honestly, this is keratoconus to me, unless proven otherwise. Now it could be normal. I've just never seen a normal cornea with regular astigmatism at a level of seven diopters. And the cornea is slightly thin. It's, you know, about 20 to 30 microns of what I would hope to be the minimum corneal thickness. So everything points to, I might find something suspicious on the topography. I could be wrong. It's, it's so interesting you say that Liz, like, so, Bill, Liz, I'm thinking the exact same route that you guys are on this specific patient. The only kind of, again, when we're weighing the pros versus the cons on this patient, the only kind of thing that he has in his favor is that it's with the rule, though we know with keratoconus that uh, that, that axis can be located pretty much anywhere. 
So this is um, the topography for the right eye and also the anterior segment OCT findings for the right eye. Um, you'll actually see the total corneal thickness um, on the bottom left, um, and it has a central corneal thickness of 515, and you'll see the epithelial thickness map as well too. The thing where I get reassured just a little bit is that there's nothing in terms of the corneal thickness that for the most part in the right eye yet, um, I find I'm finding super suspicious. Now, the left eye um, is a little bit more suspicious to me um, because where his minimum corneal thickness, it's deviated from the center quite a bit. It's actually um, located inferior temporally. And there's actually a keratoconic risk score table that we use all the time for these patients. We just wish um, the OCT companies would actually incorporate this, this um, risk table within their software. So our technicians have to do this manually. But when we actually calculated the numbers on this individual, they came up with a, with a higher than normal um, risk score. So this individual, just from their OCT or their um, anterior segment OCT scans, um, actually had a high risk of having keratoconus. So again, nothing terribly um, abnormal that, that jumps out at us in Can I ask the, you a question? Yeah, yeah, please, Bill. Oh, yeah. So, you know, I'm not an expert expert at epithelial maps, but the epithelial maps seem to be pretty normal here. In keratoconus, we have been thinning, and I'm not seeing that, that thinning over the apex. Not that there's truly an apex here, but not seeing really thinning. So, this doesn't really look like keratoconus on the epithelial maps. So, I'm still feeling this is pretty leaning more towards normal than abnormal, but obviously, some more genetic risk factor scores could be helpful. Yep, you bring up such a good point, Bill, because just like you said, we, ex we expect there to be a corresponding epithelial thinning where we're seeing the, the rest of the cornea being thinned as well, too. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more on that point. So, so we ran the test on him. There was enough um, question marks around this that we just wanted to find out what the risk was. Now, um, when we did run um, the test, we actually, after we performed the test, we actually got more family history on him as well, too. So he doesn't have any known family history of keratoconus. And he, from his description, he has the most astigmatism in his family that he's aware of. Um, and when you look at the keratoconic risk score, again, even with the 75 genes that are being measured, it's a relatively low risk that we're seeing here. So I, I really think that this is kind of one of these cases that um, really demonstrates the advantages of this because this really puts this individual in a very different category in my mind. Um, this patient will go in the Guinness Book of World Records in like <laughs> top five globally of Wait. regular with the rule of stigmatism. I've not had anyone more than maybe six diopters and this beats that. Go ahead, Bill, what were you saying? Well, no, so I just took care of a patient that reminds me a lot of this patient. They were less suspicious, but they had a six and a half hours of astigmatism. And he's a little bit on the myopic side. So I just did, we decided that and he really wanted refractive surgery. He's really into sports and he's in his early 30s. Mm -hmm. So we're doing uh, two sets of PRK. So we did the first PRK uh, just a couple of weeks ago. And he's already seen 20, I don't know how, seeing 2040 after a week, which is insane. He's like, he's never seen so well, but he still has obviously residual refractive error. Um, but again, these, some of these high stigmatism patients can be good candidates for laser vision correction. Having the genetic tests can make us feel more comfortable that these patients are good candidates and not be too worried. 
That's great. You know, I do want to ask you, because this is a great question. Like you mentioned, like our, our actual laser system will correct upwards of five diopters. Um, but like you said, in a two-step process like that, how long do you wait before you do your quote unquote enhancement? It's a great question. Well, first of all, um, the system I have usually treats five, but I couldn't capture the, the wavefront because he had too much astigmatism. I guess it's not what they would do. <laughs> sure. uh, I guess it wouldn't matter anyway, because um, you know, it was beyond that level anyway. So it was definitely, you had to go more to the, the, the typical version. Um, and then what we're doing is we're gonna try to get to a point where we can get two um, symmetrical readings about you know, two weeks apart. So my guess is closer to three months, uh, but he's already really happy. He's like, he's never seen so well in his life. Um, and you know, again, this is someone who does a lot of sports and he really was anxious to try to be re reducing his need for, for glasses and contact lenses. So um, yeah, usually my guess is about three months. If I can prove stability, then we'll do our, our part two. That was great. great. Yeah. That's great. Well, this, this, Liz, Bill, I, I think your insights into this case are just absolutely awesome. Appreciate you guys um, being on here and just, just having the ability to share this case with y'all. When you have an important task ahead of you, it's beneficial to have as much information as possible before making any decisions. Adding Avagen, the genetic eye test, to everyday practice provides eye care practitioners with useful information that can help them make better treatment decisions, especially for mild and hard to diagnose cases.